Um, so we're going to be in Psalm 67 today. Uh, there's a Bible probably right there in front of you. You can look at that. Um, this is a, a shorter psalm, and um, what's great about this psalm is we're going to spend the bulk of our time just in the first two verses today. So you can pull a Bible out right in front of you, or we're also going to have it up here on the screen for you to follow along. Um, if I was to give a title to this sermon, which I'm going to do, um, I would call it a, a missional benediction, a missional benediction. Now, I know those are not words that we frequently use on a daily basis, so let me explain each one pretty quickly. Um, you'll notice often at the, end of t- at the end of our services at Redemption, we'll do what's called a benediction, which means just a bestowal of a blessing. So you bestow a blessing upon God's people, and this is a practice that you see all throughout the scriptures, and especially throughout the Old Testament, that you bestow God's blessings as they go forward into life and community and all areas and aspects that God has placed them and ordained them to live and be, that you give God's blessing to them. And missional, just that as we go through life, there's an intentionality, there's a thoughtfulness about the places and spaces that God has given us to occupy, that we can be ambassadors, that we can be missionaries of his grace and good news. That means as we shop, as we recreate, as we love our neighbors, as we work, as we go to the park and gym and whatever it might be, we look to build relationships so that we might live out what God's called us to do in his great commission of sharing the good news of the gospel, of being good news people, of sharing God's good news. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is a a missional benediction. What's great about this is often we think that the Old Testament is filled just with the nation of Israel not really having a heart for, for missions, that this was more something that came along with the Great Commission and Jesus. But in reality, the, the impetus, the push toward mission begins all the way in Genesis. That is, God already intervenes into the mess that Adam and Eve creates. He immediately is already thinking about the arc of human history, about what redemption will look like. So creation, something that's created good and beautiful and amazing, and everything is as it ought to be. Everything is as it should be. And all of our conflicts, all of our issues, all of our questions are really you and I always wrestling with things not being the way they're supposed to be. In fact, there's often no better way to describe sin than saying that's not the way it ought to be. And all political conversations, all wars, all fights, all conflicts are really major, major depictions of us wrestling with things not being the way they ought to be. And so we see that, but immediately God intervenes and he brings in peace and mercy, not what Adam and Eve deserve, but instead he brings them peace and mercy by not immediately wiping them out, but instead saying you will now be covered and the gospel and its ark will will start to be put in motion right now through your heritage and your future and your legacy. And then you see the story continue to move forward and God intervenes into human history and Jesus shows up, not in an allegorical sense, not just in a theological sense, not just a metaphorical sense, but an actual body, a physical body. Jesus comes into this world. Space and time is disrupted with the God of the universe intervening 2,000 years ago to walk this world, to experience this life that you and I live out. And he lives a life that we can't live. And he shows us how things ought to be. But you and I still don't ever measure up or we don't meet that standard. And so what does God do? God, in Jesus Christ, goes to the cross to pay for our sins. To atone for our sins. So that you and I, we would share his death and we would also share in his resurrection. 
And because you, Christian, you are in Christ. You're united to Christ. You are with Christ in all of his accomplishments and all of his works. So you are slowly being more conformed into his image. And as we followers of Jesus in Seattle 2,000 years later, we find ourselves far away from that moment in which Jesus came into human history. And we yearn and we groan, especially as we watch the local news and we see what's going on in our communities and often look around the world and we find ourselves fearful, waiting for that final day of restoration. And so this is the story. This is the story that Psalm 67 has in mind. It's a psalm that depicts this beautiful story that you and I are a part of, this story where we find ourselves being a part of redemption and waiting for restoration. So let's look at verse 1, and we'll pick this apart a little bit, but I want you guys to see this. Here's what it says, and I'm going to read it. It's up here on the screen too. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Now you've probably heard this verse. This is a pretty well-known verse, and in fact, this verse is often used as a benediction. When you send God's people out, this is often a verse that is being shared. This verse actually is known as the, the Arionic Blessing. The Arionic Blessing. So for the, the Aaron, who was the first priest of Israel, this was a blessing that he actually sent out, was first recorded in Numbers 6.24. And when he bestowed this blessing upon Israel originally, it was just for the nation of Israel. And what we see here in Psalm 67, what was just for the nation of Israel is now for the nations. So we already see God beginning to expand his focus and his emphasis just upon the establishing of Israel and their blessing. But really, where is that blessing arcing itself to? to where is it working toward? It's working toward the nations. So I want us to look at each word. We'll, we'll go quick, but I want us to see each word here because the gospel is depicted in this verse alone. So it says first, may God be gracious to us. May God be gracious to us. What does this mean? Simply that God would give us what we don't deserve. You and I, we've walked away from God. We said, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. God, I know what's best. God, let me run my life. God, may I be God and not you be God. God, may I rebel against you. And what does God do? God offers us not what we deserve, but what Jesus took for us. And he offers us grace. We get what we don't deserve, and that's grace. We get forgiveness. I mean, just imagine, some of you have heard this illustration before, but just think about this. I mean, someone standing before the Supreme Court accused of high treason, and what's the punishment? The punishment is, is death. You're accused of high treason, and the judge, the, the Supreme Court justices decide to say, not guilty. Even though you're totally guilty, you are completely guilty of what you've been accused. You've committed treason against God, and yet he says, not guilty. But here's where it ratches it up. Here's where it gets almost offensive, especially to a lot of people when they hear this next part. It says, may God bless us. How is this different? Because it can seem like it's almost the same idea, but it's a little bit different. Here's where it actually gets really offensive to a lot of people. So, may you not only just let me go and not hold me responsible for what I've done, because someone else is going to pay for it. But while I'm actually being forgiven for high treason, can you give me a new house? Can you give me a great bank account? Can you give me a life filled with prosperity and hope and joy and maybe a trip to Maui? Could you imagine the audacity of someone who just got forgiven for high treason saying, oh yeah, by the way, um, since I'm getting forgiven, can I also just get a whole bunch of other awesome, great, good stuff? How about it? 
I mean, when you say you're totally pushing your luck, not only did you just get off for treason, but now you want blessing? And that's exactly the message of the gospel. Not only are you forgiven, but you get blessing. You get adopted into God's family. You get a new life. You get a new nature. You get a new hope. You get a new family. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing does God give you. And God then encourages us. I mean, we read the Lord's Prayer this morning, and it it reminds us that our God is a good Father, and he invites us to petition him, to ask him for blessing, to not feel like in any way we are bothering him or nagging him like a kid wanting a ride to the mall or some money for a movie, but rather God anxiously awaits us to petition him, to ask him, to pour out his blessing upon us. So not only does he free us, but he blesses us. And then here's where it gets utterly amazing. He says, and make his face shine upon us. Selah. And we talked about Selah last week. Selah simply means you need to pause and think about that because it's incredible. Selah. Pause. Consider. May your face, God, shine upon us. And as we said last week, I think I was preaching on this, the idea of God's face looking at his people seemed utterly incomprehensible to folks in the Old Testament, that if you looked upon God because of his holiness, you would die. So the idea of being united, connected, in close intimacy and proximity with God seems almost way more audacious than anyone would ever presume to ask or even imagine. But yet Jesus comes and he shows us his face and who he is, and he says, you can look upon me. You can see who I am. So not only is the gospel that you don't get what you deserve, instead Jesus got what you deserved, and not only is it that you got blessings and God was abundantly kind and gracious to you, but now you get to see the face of God in Jesus Christ. You get to commune, you get to know, you get to relate, you get to experience God. Amazing. May his face shine upon us. And this is, this is the gospel right here in Psalm 67, verse 1. Gracious, blessing, intimacy, and seeing the face of God. So this is, this is a reality I think some of us just skip right by. And we, we sign off on the theological checklist and go, okay, I get that. God loves me in a formal sense, maybe almost in the sense of he seems not to be smiting me or punishing me or, or, or coming after me. But it's so much more than that. Sometimes I think when we think of God's love, we need to fill in the word like. God likes you. He's, he's into you. He's for you. He's enamored with you. He delights in you. The way a parent sits there and watches their child play Legos or color on a piece of paper or to play with Play-Doh and you just find it enthralling and mesmerizing, not because the activity in and of itself is uh, amazing or extraordinary, but because of your creation, because that's your child, because that is your family. And so God looks upon you, and he smiles, he approves, he loves. And my, my prayer, my hope for us as a church family is this moves from being a cognitive belief, something we mentally assent to, to something we experientially realize and live out. That it wouldn't just be something in our brain of going, yes, God loves me, but it'd be something in our heart that swells up and saying, God loves me. God is for me. God is with me. God cares about me. This is 
the reality, the, the, the beauty of the gospel in and of itself, that you have a God who loves you. So when you're prone to despair, to be in dour, to being overly critical, remember that God's face shines upon you. This is where the gospel becomes intensely practical to our lives. The gospel meets us at these places of failures and flaws, and that becomes fertile ground for grace and his security to flourish and create new hearts and new natures and new realities within us. So that failures and flaws and inadequacies and and questions and self-criticism and doubt doesn't become the dominating narrative, but rather the love of God and his, his, his acceptance of us becomes our functional reality. Think of Jesus' baptism. What happens at Jesus' baptism? We looked at this a couple months ago, redemption, in, in the Gospel of John. We talked about it. At Jesus' baptism, here from the sky, as his, as his heavenly Father speaks, and he says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. You, Christian, this is why we talk about it all the time, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. So when God looks upon Jesus and says, I am well pleased, he's saying that upon us because we are in Christ. He's well pleased with you. He's well pleased with us. And may that be a reminder for us who sometimes are prone to live into a false reality and thinking way too much sometimes about our failures and our flaws and all the things that are wrong with us instead of realizing that we are made by God and loved deeply by God. Folks, this is the gospel, and if this is something you haven't heard before, may I hope it rings true into your heart, and you embrace it, and you surrender, and you trust in Christ, that you follow Christ. And for you, Christian, or maybe you've been coming to redemption for a while, and you're saying to yourself, why do we always come back to the gospel? Why do we always preach the gospel? Because the gospel is not the starting point of Christianity. It's the totality of of Christianity. It's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z of the Christian reality. It is our message. It is our only message. It is our only hope. It is what we live in. The gospel is, it's, it's, it's like hygiene. It's not something you just do one time. Like, hey, I, I cleaned myself three months ago. But rather the gospel, you need it daily. You, you need to be rejuvenated. You need to experience it. You need to remind yourself of it. You need to preach it to yourself. You need to know that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven by God, that he's been gracious to you, that he's blessed you, and that his face shines upon you. This isn't a truth. You heard it at youth camp 10 years ago, but this is a truth for today and every day and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday right around the corner. This is our only message. So what's the implication? What happens when the gospel really begins to pervade into the life of God's people? Well, glad you guys asked. That's exactly what verse 2 tells us. Let's look at it. It's up here on the screen. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now check this out. The very first word in verse 2 says that. It's it's a purpose clause. What it says is, in order that. So all that good news of the gospel, which verse 1 makes abundantly clear to us, is set up. It's fused together that if you begin to realize the reality of the gospel, it's going to lead to this outflow of mission. That you being loved by God, you being blessed by God, you experiencing God's grace will lead to you caring, loving, serving, sharing with others. 
that the gospel has a natural reality in which it's always flowing outward, in which it's always moving. Um, there's some pictures we'll put up here. You're not, probably not going to be able to see them that well. Um, but think of it this way. This is the way I, I tend to think about it a lot of times, is there can be a temptation for us. This is a picture of a swamp over here. Just murky, nasty, uh, just dirty water. And what happens for a lot of us is we revel, we experience, we believe the goodness of the gospel, of the reality of God's love for us, but it doesn't flow anywhere. It just stays stagnant, and it gets very dank, it gets smelly, it gets, uh, it gets unhealthy even. Or think of a stream, a nice flowing river and stream. What keeps the water healthy, what keeps it lush, what keeps it beautiful, what keeps it fertile is that it's moving that it has movement to it. And that's the same with the gospel, that it is not meant to be stunted or stopped or, or just with us. So that I've heard the gospel, I've been transformed, I'm being made new, I guess that's good enough. But no, there is an inclination, there is a bent, there is a reality that as we hear the good news of the gospel, as we experience God's grace, it's going to lead to an overflow of us sharing that with others. So that we're not stagnant, swamp church people, but rather we are a river, a flowing stream of good news people as we experience the goodness of God, as we remind ourselves of the gospel, we can't help but have that be an outpouring of us and our lives into others who don't know Jesus. This is, for us, church, the reality in which I want us to see us move forward in, even in the next couple months. As we move into the fall, what does it look like for us to be a church that cares more about our community, that begins to pray, to earnestly seek God, to petition Him, to ask Him, how do we grow as a church in reaching out to Green Lake, to our neighborhood, to our city, to be a blessing to others? We are blessed to be a blessing. That blessing that's poured out on us is meant to flow through us. How do we, as a church, begin to petition God and seek his face and ask him what he would have us do to extend this good news of the gospel with the nations? And this is something that we're praying about. We're asking Jesus, Jesus, what do you have for us? How can we not only love Seattle and Green Lake, but what does it look like for us to think of those who are still unreached people groups all over this world? The good news of the gospel should never stop or terminate on us, but rather we should be an ever-flowing vessel in which the good news of the gospel, as it fills us, flows to those around us. I don't want us to be a stagnant pond. I want us to be a flowing stream. And often, I mean, I'm, I say this because I love you guys, but when I meet with folks and I sit down and have coffee with you, this, this reality of a stagnant pond comes up because you're wondering, I, I feel disconnected, I feel almost afraid from God's presence. I feel lethargic. I just feel very dry. And might it be because God has something in store for you, something adventurous, something bold, something in which you have to take a risk, a chance to reach out, to share, to connect, to love, to serve, so that the gospel might continue flowing through you. One of the primary indicators of a spirit-filled person is a person who in boldness is sharing and extending the gospel to others. The Holy Spirit has a way of continuing to fill us as we pour out into others. Often we read verses of to whom much is given, much is expected, and we think those are about just money, but they're not. They're also about the opportunities to share and be a blessing to others that God has given. We have been given much, church, 
And so much is expected, not because God is going to measure us on it and in which our salvation is at stake, but rather because he wants us to be a conduit in which his blessing can go forward. Matt Redmond, uh, a worship leader, he has a song, and one of the lyrics I think just nails how verse 1 and 2 fuse together. He says this, I am breathing in your grace, and I'm breathing out your praise. I am breathing in your grace, taking a deep breath, and then breathing out your praise. And as we share the gospel, that is a form of praise. As we testify to the goodness and who God is, that is a form of praise. So as we come to church and we fill our hearts with who God is and are reminded of who he is and we love one another, that we breathe out his praise, that we share his gospel with those around us. And so some of us, some of us breathe in and in and in and in. And we look at the idea maybe of reaching out, of sharing our faith, of being evangelistic, of talking to someone about the gospel. And that seems daunting and something that we're not necessarily wanting to do. And I just say, think about it. Would you breathe in, 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 in over and over and never exhale and think that to be healthy? Or maybe some of you, you love to be service-oriented. You love to get busy. You love to do stuff. You love to spend time with lost people. You love to go, 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 do, do, do. My wife is a total worker bee. She has this nature, and it's, it's awesome. But just sit here and think about it with me. What if you only exhaled? <laughs> Eventually, there's nothing left inside. You have no breath left to operate from. And so it's a rhythm for all of us that we breathe in God's grace and we breathe out his praise. That's exactly what Psalm 67 is teaching us. So as a church, I think that this pushes us and compels us to ask ourselves, what does it look like for us to become a church that shares our faith more, that becomes more evangelistic? Because the reality is, is those things that you love the most, those things that you care about the most, those things that you're passionate about the most, you can't help but share about. I mean, I, I'll just be honest. I love Chipotle. Like, I could eat Chipotle every single day. Um, my wife and I often joke around, if you could only eat at one restaurant every meal of the day for an entire year, which would it be? And I'm like, Chipotle. I could just eat there every day, every meal. I'd probably gain about 40 pounds, but I, I would love it. And here's what happens through my love of Chipotle. I eventually become evangelistic about Chipotle. I share the good news of Chipotle with those around me. Have you been to Chipotle? Have you tried Chipotle? Chipotle's amazing. You got to check out Chipotle. Let's go to Chipotle. This is what happens because I love Chipotle. So I eventually begin to share about it. I eventually begin to tell others. And we all do this, whether it's your favorite musician, whether it's your favorite sports team, whether it's your favorite hobby, whatever it is, what you love, you end up sharing. And so this isn't meant to condemn or judge or make any of us feel shame. But I wonder where our affections are, where our hearts are, where our desires are, when there seems to often be so little in the way of wanting to share Jesus. And I think sometimes it's not necessarily that we don't love Jesus. There are just some other obstacles. And some of these I want us to talk through really quickly. And I hope it's helpful and very practical. And they're going to come up on the screen for you. Just some of the reasons I think sharing, especially sharing the good news of the gospel, becomes hard for us. One of them is, is fear. I think fear might be at the top of the list. This idea of what could possibly happen. What if? I mean, the scenarios begin to run through our mind and we become quite afraid. 
What if they reject me? What if they don't like me? What if they laugh at me? What if, what if, what if, what if? This fear stops us. It paralyzes us. It retards us from sharing the good news of the gospel. Did you know in Acts, the book of Acts, as the church was just getting started, they had only one prayer. Only one prayer. And these people were being persecuted. They were being fed to lions. They were being stoned. They were having their homes destroyed. They were being, having their lives completely ripped apart. And they had just one prayer. The one thing they prayed about in the face of all that persecution and all that trial and calamity was boldness. That they would have more boldness. That they would have all the boldness possible to continue to share the gospel in spite of what seemed like awful, dire circumstances. Now here you are, the city's against you, your neighborhood's against you, their workplaces are against them, and yet what they want, what they beg God for, what they petition God for is boldness. God, may you give us boldness in spite of the fear, in spite of the cultural conditions, in spite of what I think will be the eventual response. May you give me the boldness to share my faith. And the reality is, is I think we make it way more complicated and sometimes work up uh, horrible scenarios in our mind that never come into reality. Statistics show that most people invited to church who don't attend church, 70% of them would say yes, and they would come along with a friend if they were invited. 70% just waiting if someone would ask them, if someone would show interest, if someone would engage them. And what if? What if it doesn't work? That's the second reason I think some of us get really discouraged is number two, failure. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work out? What if they don't immediately want an altar call and get down on their knees and go through the four spiritual laws and start following Jesus and read their Bible every morning? And what if, what if, what if? Well, what if you fail? The goal wasn't necessarily success. It was faithfulness. God's in charge of the results, and we just get to be faithful. Ephesians 2 reminds us that there are good works that God's prepared in advance for do for us to do, which means he's already outlined, he's already ordained, he's already put together the good works. And we just faithfully walk into them. And you know what? You're going to fail. And you won't have all the answers. And you don't need to. God doesn't expect you to. But will you be faithful? Will you love someone? Will you engage them? And here's the truth. Every conversation that you have with someone as you love them and you're engaging them and you're relating them doesn't necessarily have to be a gospel presentation moment every time. What if, what if just the Holy Spirit's prompting you to take an interest in someone and walk across the room? Will you do that? What if the Holy Spirit's just asking you to invite that new coworker to lunch and get to know them a little bit better? Will you listen to that prompting, to that nudge from the Holy Spirit? What if the Holy Spirit is just asking you to ask them about their spiritual background? Will you do that? Will you just be faithful to what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do? See, the beautiful reality is, is we are dead to ourselves. We're alive in Christ, which frees us to get over ourselves and frees us to fail and frees us from fear and also at the same time frees us from having all the answers. And that leads us to the third one. I think sometimes we wonder, what would I possibly even say? And we feel like we have to become an apologetic expert. We have to get our Lee Strobel on and read all of our Case for Christ books and have an answer to every single possible question and understand the entire canon of the Bible and how it was formulated and put together and have an answer for every question that anyone could ever ask before we have a conversation about Jesus with our neighbor. And we don't. We just have to tell our story. 
We just have to say what God has done in our life, what it's looked like to go from death to life, what it's looked like to experience grace and transformation, what it's looked like to know and see the face of God shine upon you. And not in a hokey, super religious way, but a very practical, man, I'm no different than you. I'm one blind beggar leading other blind beggars to where there is life, to where there is bread, to where there is true living water. And we tell that story. Every single person around you, every lost person you know, is groping, searching, looking for meaning, looking for truth, looking for love. And all of that is found in the good news of the gospel that you know that God has opened your ears to, that he's opened your eyes to. And we get the chance to share that with people. This is a beautiful reality. And along the way, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what God has in store for America. I really don't spend too much time necessarily getting worked up about those things. But I, I, can, I can seem to tell that the, maybe the cultural winds are not going our way. And that's okay. The church, God's people, have always done the best from the margins. We need to not waste our time trying to protect and hold this ground of, 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 of privilege and of cultural security and wanting to be liked and appreciated and respected by all those around us. That era of Christendom that the church in America has experienced for the last couple hundred years, it's probably over. As Christians, we'll probably move to the margins more and more so. And we'll become more nimble, and we'll experience God's presence, and we'll experience His grace, and we'll experience the work of the Holy Spirit as He continues to be faithful to the building of His church. And I think for some of us, that might scare us a little bit, but think of China. China, 75 years ago, the Communist Party kicked out all missionaries, banished all Christians from China. Lo and behold, what's happened since then, since that's become a culture and a nation in which the church was not really allowed to have a public presence or established reality, is the church has flourished. It's estimated now that in China there's over 140 million Christians. I would say probably more than in the United States. China has become a powerhouse of what God is doing as the Great Commission continues to unfold, as people are reached. And all of that as a, pl as a people and from a place of the margins not from a place of cultural preeminence or popularity or prestige. And God continues to work, and he'll do that in our lives. First Peter tells us, rejoice when you're rejected. So if you're rejected, if you're despised, if you are put off, if you're mocked, if you're laughed at, rejoice, knowing that your Savior was also rejected and laughed at and mocked. And he tells you, in this life, which this life is but a mist, as James tells us. In this life, which will go by so quick, you will have troubles. You will suffer. You will be laughed at. You will be mocked. But you'll have Christ and such a gain, such a deal for you in the midst of anything that comes our way. So what does it look like? What does it look like for you and I to become people who are willing to risk, who are willing to be bold, to share our story with those around us? to love those around us, to pursue the nations because God has been faithful to us. So we get this great joy. We get this great joy of being God's ambassadors of his glorious message of the gospel. And for some of us, here's once again too, where we also go to the end of the spectrum of thinking, wow, this all rides on me. If I don't get this right, if we don't do this right, if, if we don't have the right plan, if we don't have the right strategy, then, then what's going to happen? Let me just say, 
pressure's off, and here's why. Because God doesn't need us. We're not doing ministry for God. We don't do missions for God. Rather, he invites us. He tells us to do it with him. So rather than doing missions for God, we get to do it with him. Often when I need to go to the grocery store um, to get like a gallon of milk or a carton of eggs or something like that, um, I'll bring along my, my little girl, Grace, who's, who's five. And I'll bring her along with me to accomplish the mission of getting milk and eggs. Guess what? I don't need her to get the milk and eggs. In fact, it'd probably be a lot quicker. It'd probably be way more efficient. We probably wouldn't make as many stops in the candy aisle and have to go see the lobsters and all this other weird stuff when we get into the QFC. But we'd pro- I'd probably get out of there a lot quicker if I didn't have to bring her with me. But I want her with me. I want her to come along. I want her to experience the grocery store because to her it's exciting, it's fun, it's an adventure. And that's a lot like what God's calling us to. That he's calling us to a life of significance, of meaning as we live out the Great Commission. That we don't do missions for God, but we get to do it with God by the power of his Holy Spirit, which has taken up residence in us. And so we're free to fail, we're free to be rejected, we're free to be laughed at, and we're also just free to be faithful. You don't have to be a world beater. No one has to be Billy Graham. Just love the people that God has placed in proximity to you. You have access to people around you right now that I will never have access to. You have a circle of influence. You have a circle of friends and family members that God has placed you there, not by accident, but because he planned it way before even the beginning of time that you would be an ambassador of his good news, that you would love that person, that you would listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. See, without blessing, there is no mission. Without the gospel, there's no mission. So we can never forget that everything starts, flows, and emanates from the gospel. But without mission, without mission, the gospel becomes stale and stagnant and even indulgent. It becomes about us, and we become inward focused, and over time, our church goes from a movement to a museum. I don't know about you guys, but we, we get one life. We get, we get one at bat. Think about it that way. You get one at bat. If you only get one at bat, I mean, don't you just want to swing for the fences? I mean, we're going to see Jesus face to face. Everyone in this room probably within 100 years. I mean, you won't be here anymore. You'll be in heaven, and every tear will be dried, every sorrow will be forgotten, and we will reminisce, and we will celebrate what we got to do with our at bat. Don't keep the bat on your shoulder. Swing for the fences. Realize that God's given you people to love and serve and to share his good news with. And who knows what will happen? That's the fun of it. That's the adventure. That's the excitement that many of us are missing out on. Who knows? But I do know what will happen if we don't. Nothing. Nothing will happen. So how about it? What's it going to look like for us to become a church that pushes in, that says as the gospel flows to us, we'll allow it to flow out? As we close out this psalm, I love it. It has the end in mind, and it shows us what really matters, especially as we get bogged down in the day-to-day. Sometimes we forget about what really matters. Here's what the rest of it says in verse 3 through 7. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is a reality that as we experience joy, as we experience blessing, the reality, the culmination of all of this is that the nations would sing the praises of God. This is where all of human history is headed. This is where it all ends, is with every knee bowing to God. We will sing his praises. Habakkuk tells us that that is the end of the story, that all of the world is covered with the singing of his glorious grace. C.S. Lewis, um, this was great. I actually appreciated his honesty. He, he writes about this in a number of his books, that he always thought it was a little odd that God would be so uh, just insistent upon us praising him. He thought, is, is God an egomaniac? Why does he seem so bent on having us praise him? Until he began to realize that for every single one of us, joy joy, the emotion that we love, the emotion that we crave, the feeling of satisfaction, joy that we love is best experienced when it's expressed. That our, our joy, the thing that we are excited about, that we love the most, it is fully realized when we're able to express it. This is why, as a people, humans, all of our celebrations are communal. Have you ever thought about that? Why is a wedding filled with family and friends? Why is a graduation filled with family and friends? Why is a promotion celebrated with coworkers and family and friends? Why? Because let's just say you graduated and then just go back to your apartment and sat on the couch. I mean, that's no way to culminate the joy. That's no way to have it fully experienced and expressed. No, instead, what you want to do when you get promoted, when you have a baby, when you get married, when you graduate, when you have a major life accomplishment, what do you want to do? You want to share that. You want to share it with others. And so God invites us. He says, I know that your joy, I know the thing that you want most to experience joy will be finally enhanced when it's expressed. This is why you see people spend thousands of dollars every year to fill a football stadium to scream at the field. 70,000 people, Seahawks games, get up and stand and scream. Why do they all do that together? Why is it communal? Why do they need to do it collectively? Because it's the culmination of their joy. It's the culmination. It's the shared experience of their joy. And so you and I, this is what church is. We get the opportunity to be the place where we sing together, where we express our joy in who God is and in his grace. So last question, just to wrap things up. Come up on the screen here for you to see. As you breathe in grace, as you breathe in grace, as you continue to return and rest in the reality of the gospel and how gracious God has been to you, how much he has blessed you, and that you're invited to have fellowship and intimacy and connection with him. Who are you to share it with? Who is it? May the Holy Spirit right now bring that person into your mind. May he flash it before you. And don't run from it. Don't bump off of it. Don't just go eat a sandwich after church. Although you can eat a sandwich after church. But just don't, don't forget who that person is, okay? Write it down. Make a, a plan 
text them, call them, email them today. Let them know you're thinking about them. Let them know that you're praying for them. Let them know that you'd like to talk with them and hear more of their story and share your story. Who's that person? Redemption for all of us, we should have those people. should have people that in our lives we are looking to breathe out God's praise because we have been so deeply enriched with his grace.